excited to be in the middle of a series called Teach Us to Pray. Um, at the beginning of each new year, we all make different uh, resolutions. We make different promises to ourselves that this year might be different. And so this is our um, chance to just jump into what is kind of the most essential thing for us as believers and followers of Christ. It's to recommit ourselves to communing and collaborating with our God. And so we echo the words of Jesus in Luke 11, or we echo the words of his disciples in Luke 11, teach us to pray. This is what we're going to be focusing on the next few weeks. And Cassie opened it uh, last week with the thought that we're invited into communion with God the Father. Well, in Jesus' uh, account, or in Jesus' biography known as Luke, Luke gives particular attention to Jesus' prayer habits. So I want to just read to you a few examples of Jesus in prayer through the gospel of Luke. First in Luke 5, great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Then just one chapter later in Luke 6, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Three chapters later in Luke 9. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. Luke depicts Jesus as one who retreats from opportunities to teach the lost, to heal the sick, and instead spends his time in prayer. He depicts Jesus as one who confronts the decisions he has in life by praying all night long. He tells a story of Jesus being transformed in the place of prayer. And in these accounts, Jesus genuinely seems to enjoy prayer. But that's not quite our experience, is it? For most of us, prayer is a drag. It's boring. For many, the impulse is to pray. The impulse to pray is born out of a religious guilt trip. Like, well, I, I see prayer in the Bible quite a bit, so it must be important. Um, so regardless of how I feel about it, I'm just going to commit myself to it. Or for others, it is the equivalent of a wellness shot, something like a turmeric tonic or a wheatgrass juice. It burns all the way down. But someone told me it was good for me at one point. And if we're honest with ourselves, none of us would really say we're killing it at prayer. None of us would say, man, I've really got prayer figured out. Outside of a few, most of us would say this is a weakness in our discipleship to Jesus. And I think there are many reasons for that, which we could get into. But if I could just cut through all the noise and get to the heart of it, I don't know if prayer really works. I don't really know if getting up early in the morning 
dragging myself out of bed earlier than I would like, spending a few minutes reading an obscure passage of scripture, and listing all the things I want and desire to Santa Claus in the sky. I don't, I don't know if that works. I don't know if I'm talking to the creator of the universe or just the paint on my wall. And we're all haunted by memories of unmet expectations and seemingly unanswered petitions to the God of the universe. And on the occasion, something actually happens that mimics or mirrors some of the prayers that I've prayed. It's really easy to just ask the question, was that going to happen anyway? Is this just a coincidence that I mentioned that earlier and now something has happened? If we're honest, we're not sure prayer really works. But this seems really far from Jesus' experience. It would seem Jesus understood prayer as a necessity, a delight, a profound invitation to collaborate with God to set our world back to rights. Jesus seems to think that prayer is a good way to get things done with his heavenly father. He seems to genuinely think that retreating from the crowds, taking a whole night over a decision is a better use of time than anything else. Which leads us to the disciples' question in Luke 11, right? Teach us to pray. Now, Jesus' disciples were not unfamiliar with prayer. Like, they were not like, whoa, what is this thing you're doing? They were first century Jews. Their entire life revolved around praying the ancient prayers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were men that likely had the first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah, memorized by their 13th birthday. Like, they had a lifetime of prayer experience. And so to hear them, to read about them asking Jesus to teach them to pray would suggest that the nature of Jesus' prayer was different. That there was something about the way Jesus prayed that set it apart from a lifetime of religious teaching that they had experienced. So even as these disciples have a lifetime of experience praying, they still say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus' response to that question has become both a pattern and a script for prayer. A guideline for prayer and a prayer that we in this community regularly recite. It is the place we go when we ask and we wonder, Jesus, how do we pray? This is not just another prayer. This is the prayer. So in Luke 11, verse 2, Jesus says this. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Jesus begins his famous prayer with, Father, hallowed be your name. 
This is an essential reminder that it is less about how we pray and more about who we are praying to. It is less about methodology and more about who our relationship belongs to. We pray to our Heavenly Father, one who loves us, one who even likes us. You've heard God loves you a lot. Let me just remind you, he likes you too. There is a difference. And then in the second line, which is the one we will focus on today, Jesus says, your kingdom come. Now, Luke's version is much shorter than Matthew's. You're likely very familiar with Matthew chapter 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Nevertheless, these two mirror each other. And to pray your kingdom come is a practice known as intercessory prayer. Now, the idea of intercessory prayer has roots both in the Old and the New Testament. But maybe the most helpful definition comes from the Latin root intercedo, which means to come in between. Simply put, in layman's terms for you and I, intercession is to pray for someone else. All intercessory prayer is to look outside the selfish vacuum of our own heart, motivated by love for other, and to make their requests known before God. It is an intentional choice to look outside the endless temptation to voice my needs, my desires, my wants, and to lift up the needs, desires, and wants of others. Not my needs, but their needs. And so Jesus is talking about the type of prayer that starts first with the love for other and ends with inviting God to partner with us in that love. Or as Richard Foster puts it, if we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than it is within our power to give them. And this will lead us to prayer Intercession is a way of loving others. Intercessory prayer is a selfless prayer, even self-giving prayer. In the ongoing work of the kingdom of God, nothing is more important than intercessory prayer. So in praying your kingdom come, we pray not just for ourselves, but for the whole world. And so to rouse ourselves from the prayerless stupor we occupy, to answer the question, do my prayers work? We must once again be reminded of the position we've been given in the heavenly hierarchy and awakened to the power we've been given access to. So... To begin this, I want to take a look at Genesis chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible, if you've got it on your phone, hopefully you have it on your phone at least, uh, we're going to Genesis 1 verse 26. No shame in looking at the table of contents, but I'll tell you it's page 1. Genesis 1 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
At the dawn of creation, humanity was made in the image of God, bestowed with a certain dignity and responsibility, with a noble status and a royal assignment. And that royal task is further explained in Genesis 2. One page over, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Um, Just a quick note, the NIV might have a better translation. The Lord God took the man and put him to work in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is far from the idea of sitting in the shade and eating grapes we might think of with the Garden of Eden. In the paradise called Eden, those first humans were given work and freedom to lovingly rule over all of God's creation. From the beginning, we've been intercessors, the in-betweeners, the mediators between heaven and earth, given the freedom and the authority to care for all of God's creation on God's behalf. Now, God maintains sovereignty and ultimate governing authority over his creation, but he sets up human beings as his royal delegates and regional managers entrusted to carefully and lovingly cultivate this world. We are not assistants to the regional manager. We are the regional manager. Praise be to God. God, in his infinite wisdom, desired free collaborators, those that would be his co-workers. It's not that God needs us, but it's like he got sick of working from home, and so he desired to put up with the office for the joyful inconvenience of coworkers, just for someone to be around. He's hit the point in which he wants to invite someone into the collaboration process, to join him in the ruling of creation. But where freedom exists, evil is always a decision away. And at some point, we took advantage of that freedom, choosing to do what was right in our own eyes. And Genesis 3 records our insurrection in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight for the eyes, and that tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We believed a lie and betrayed the creator. Our lives, our relationships, and our world that we were entrusted is plunged into darkness and chaos and death. And that's the place we now inhabit. The notion of royal delegates made in the image of God caring for a garden paradise has been replaced with anxious and traumatized people fighting it out for what little comfort we can scrape out for ourselves. That is the place we occupy. And God's collaborators entrusted with the world, that's who we were, and we've done a pretty subpar job of that. The environment is destabilizing, putting into question whether this planet will be inhabitable 
at some point in the near future. The nations that need the most are having their resources by the nations that consume the most. One segment of humankind is dying of starvation while another part dies of obesity. The idea that God entrusted us to care for his world is not that hard to believe because we've seen the darkness in the human heart. We recognize it in ourselves, and as we look around this, about right. We cannot be trusted very far to care and to take care of God's good creation. And the rest of the story of Scripture is about God and his links he will go to solve that problem. It's the story of Israel on a cycle, a a spiral of deepening corruption and violence and it's just, it is our story as well. But despite it all, his vision of free collaborators. And so in the most surprising of decisions, our God comes to earth in the form of a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. And in Jesus, that identity that was corrupted in our rebellion is restored. So in the life, death, and resurrection of one man, the darkness we all know has been pierced by a light. We've been offered an invitation to return to our original inheritance and to take up our old position as royal delegates, God's collaborators to put his world back to rights. In Jesus, we've been invited into the divine conspiracy to save the world. And that's who we are in Christ. Now, Grayson has a very fair question. Uh, What does any of this have to do with prayer? Glad you asked, Grayson. Thank you. Here are just a few quick hitters on what this has to do with prayer. It first means that we are not pawns in a cosmic story. Destined to just play a part, we are invited to help God direct the world. Sky Jahani, in his brilliant little book, What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer, writes this. We are not merely passive set pieces in a prearranged cosmic drama, but we are active participants with God in the writing, directing, design, and action that unfolds. Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. It is drawing into communion with him and there taking up our privileged role as his people. In prayer, we are invited to join him in directing the course of the world. This also means that prayer is not a charade. God doesn't do what he's planning, and just pretends that we were somewhat a part of the process. Dallas Willard poignantly makes this point. God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he is only going to do what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It merely, it makes prayer psychologically impossible, 
replacing it with a dead ritual at best. Of course, this is not the biblical idea of prayer, nor is it the idea of people for whom prayer is a vital part of our lives. To think that God is going to do what God is going to do and my prayers don't make a difference explains every morning why it's way easier to hit snooze than join God in what he is doing in his world. When we pray, things that were not going to happen, happen. Remember the line that started us down this journey. Your kingdom come. If Jesus is instructing us to pray this, it would mean that the kingdom of God has not fully come into our world. That the way things are cannot be the way God desires them. For the kingdom of God is what life looks like when God is in charge. And it would also suggest that prayer plays a part in transforming what is into what can be. Or as Walter Wink, the agitator and theologian, once wrote, When we pray, we are not sending a letter to a celestial White House where it is sorted among piles of others. We are engaged, rather, in the act of co-creation, in which one little sector of the universe rises up, becomes translucent, incandescent, a vibratory center of power that radiates the power of the universe. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. In Christ, we have been given a profound invitation to help set the world back to rights through our prayerful intercession. In the beginning, humanity was created as God's co-laborers, intercessors called to freely and joyfully partner with him to cultivate our good world. And as the story goes, humans have gotten into the habit of contributing to the chaos rather than cultivating a good creation. But God's invitation remains to be his collaborators pushing back the darkness and the first move in accepting that invitation is to clasp our hands in prayer for in prayer we collaborate with God to set his world back to rights to be the intercessors means that all of the kingdom's resources are available for our distribution it's almost if, as if God is inviting us to the boardroom of heaven and saying, what do we do with all this stuff? This is our invitation. And it begins with love for other and ends with God turning the order of the world upside down. Or as Karl Barth put it, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. That is something I could get up a few minutes early for. That is the type of impact I would work through the night for. That is something I'd be willing to skip a lunch for. That is prayer that would change the whole of my life. That vision of prayer is something I can get on board with. Worship team, if you want to join us. So I want to return to the question that started us down this rabbit hole. Do my prayers work? The biblical theology that I just laid out is that God is inviting us into the process 
of pushing back the darkness, that he's inviting us into the process of ruling his world with love and kindness and goodness, that he is inviting us into that collaborative process. But do my prayers work still remains the burning question. I recently became aware that I have a really bad habit, a a habit of praying so vaguely that I would not know if God answered my prayers whatsoever. (laughs) If I say, God, bless my neighbor, they seemed happier than before, but I'm not really sure if God did anything. I've built up such a habit from years of religious experience, an unmet expectation that I hedge my prayers I don't ask with the same boldness I did whenever I was seven. I don't ask with the same audacity of one who is known as a beloved child. I don't ask with the courage of one who's been invited into the process of cultivating the good world. Instead, I hedge my prayers. Oh, God, help them out. I don't know what it would look like if you did, but it would be nice if you do. And the process continues, and I cycle through this going, I don't don't know if me waking up any earlier is helping whatsoever. Because I've just leaned into generalities and religious notions. I've leaned into prayers that actually don't change the face of the world. They just make me feel a little bit better. And as I thought through this sermon, as I reflected on the nature of God's kingdom and his profound invitation to partner with him, I was once again challenged to ask specifically and boldly for the kingdom to come into our city, to push back the darkness that we see all around us, and to once again demonstrate the love of our heavenly father. Listen, I know that unanswered prayers are a problem. But I'm beginning to think that unasked prayers are a catastrophe. That things don't change because there are too many unasked prayers sitting in our imagination. We have not taken up our authority as those who are collaborators with God to just simply ask on behalf of our neighbor, to ask on behalf of our city, ask on behalf of our neighborhood, God, would you show up? I don't have that story that's going to blow your mind. I racked my brain all week. Like, what's what's the story that's just going to, like, oh, convince everybody prayer works? And to be honest, I don't know if you'd believe me if I had it. I think this is one of those instances that we all have to have our own moment where we cried out to God on behalf of our neighbor, and God showed up in such a miraculous way All we can say is, look what God did. I'm not going to patronize you with a story. You have to discover that for yourself. So what if this community were to accept God's invitation to be his intercessors? To commit to loving and praying, not just for ourselves, but others in our life in such a way that it is specific. That it changes the world we see? What if we took up our royal identity as the intercessors of God seriously? What if we prayed for that single mother three doors down 
that she would receive the job she's been praying for. Not God help her receive a job, but the job she's been asking for. What if we prayed for the grandparent that has been given a grim cancer diagnosis? What if we prayed that the rate of homelessness in our city would unexpectedly drop? What if we prayed that the truce corridor would be renewed not by the displacement of a population, but by the lifting up of the impoverished and the hurting? What if we prayed for your supervisor whose personal struggles have made an unbearable tyrant in your office? What if we prayed that our church would be a haven for those recovering from the poison of addiction? What if we prayed for our public schools, blessed with caring educators and cursed with a history of bad administration? What if we prayed that the funds set aside for a new jail in our city would be able to be reallocated to small business grants and neighborhood gardens? What if we prayed for the parent, sibling, or friend to find their deepest longings fulfilled in Christ? What could happen if we took our role as praying in the kingdom future seriously? And the only way I know is to try, or as Teresa of Avila put it, the only way to learn how to pray is to pray. There is no secret to this. There is no special formula There is just boldness to approach the throne room of heaven and once again say, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So here's my simple invitation. The rantings of a mad pastor who spent way too much time on his sermon this week. Let us as a community take God up on his invitation to be collaborators to be the interceders for this community, lifting up the needs, wants, and future of our city, our neighbors, and our families. And as we begin to intercede, my encouragement is to write down your prayers. Listen, I have a terrible memory. Acacio mentioned something that just happened weeks ago, and I'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about, and she'll have photographic evidence. I have a terrible memory, and especially in the morning, the time where I get up and just spend with God, my memory is so spotty, I might need to see a doctor. So my encouragement to those like me is to write down your prayers and to keep coming back to them, to not write the general of Lord, bless that person, but rather, God, intervene in such a way that it is unmistakable that your finger has been in the midst of that situation. We have this roll of butcher paper in our living room that Cassie and I have begun to write our specific prayers for those in our life. It's a visual reminder every day that what what we believe God is going to do in the lives of those around us. So at this moment, would you pull out a phone, open a journal, or grab a scrap of paper? I don't know where you'll find the paper. But grab something. And as we go into worship, as we come to the table of the Lord, to be reminded of what God has done on our behalf, 
the miracle that is salvation, would you once again be inspired to pray specifically? To take God at his word. To say, what would happen if God's kingdom burst into our present? Put names, put dates, put numbers. Because unless you do, you will once again, we will all once again be lost in the question, do my prayers work? But if you have a monument to a moment, if you have something you wrote down in a time and a place, you have a moment to remember and pull, and the question does, do my prayers work? You have a direct response to it. For these will be specific signposts for you to know that our God is still at work and that your prayers do work. This is an invitation not just to this week, but over the next several months, may we discover what it means to pray, your kingdom come. Let's pray. Father, you have given us a profound invitation to be your collaborators. To be the people called to help you set the world back to rights. May we take you up on your offering. May we be the people moved by love for others that we lift up the names of our neighbors. We lift up the names of our coworkers. We lift up the names of our friends, of our family. We lift up the needs of our city. And we are specific enough to know when you answer them. We're specific enough to be able to see when your kingdom comes to work in our town. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in the, name, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.